Part Six, Chapter Two of Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky, translated by Constance Garnett, eighteen sixty one to nineteen forty six. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Six, Chapter Two. Ah, these cigarettes! Porfiry Petrovitch ejaculated at last, having lighted one. They are pernicious, positively pernicious, and yet I can't give them up. I cough, I begin to have tickling in my throat and a difficulty in breathing. You know I am a coward. I went lately to Dr. B. He always gives at least half an hour to each patient. He positively laughed looking at me. He sounded me. Tobacco's bad for you, he said. Your lungs are affected. But how am I to give it up? What is there to take its place? I don't drink, that's the mischief, <laughs> that I don't. Everything is relative, Rodion Romanovitch, everything is relative." Why, he's playing his professional tricks again, Raskolnikov thought with disgust. All the circumstances of their last interview suddenly came back to him, and he felt a rush of feeling that had come upon him then. "'I came to see you the day before yesterday, in the evening, you didn't know?' Porfiry Petrovitch went on, looking around the room. "'I came into this very room. I was passing by, just as I did today, and I thought I'd return your call. I walked in as your door was wide open. I looked round, waited, and went out without leaving my name with your servant. Don't you lock your door?' Raskolnikov's face grew more and more gloomy. Porfiry seemed to guess his state of mind. "'I've come to have it out with you, Rodion Romanovitch, my dear fellow. I owe you an explanation and must give it to you.' he continued with a slight smile, just patting Raskolnikov's knee. But almost at the same instant a serious and careworn look came into his face. To his surprise Raskolnikov saw a touch of sadness in it. He had never seen and never suspected such an expression in his face. A strange scene passed between us last time we met, Rodion Romanovitch. Our first interview, too, was a strange one. But then and one thing after another. This is the point. I have, perhaps, acted unfairly to you. I feel it. Do you remember how we parted? Your nerves were unhinged, and your knees were shaking, and so were mine. And, you know, our behavior was unseemly, even ungentlemanly. And yet we are gentlemen, above all in any case gentlemen. That must be understood. Do you remember what we came to? and it was quite indecorous. "'What is he up to? What does he take me for?' Raskolnikov asked himself in amazement, raising his head and looking with open eyes on Porfiry. "'I've decided openness is better between us,' Porfiry Petrovitch went on, turning his head away and dropping his eyes, as though unwilling to disconcert his former victim, and as though disdaining his former wiles. Yes, such suspicions and such scenes cannot continue for long. Nikolai put a stop to it, or I don't know what we might not have come to. That damned workman was sitting at the time in the next room. Can you realize that? You know that, of course, and I am aware that he came to you afterwards. But what you suppose, then, was not true. I had not sent for anyone. I had made no kind of arrangements. You ask why I hadn't? What shall I say to you? It had all come upon me so suddenly. 
I had scarcely sent for the porters, you noticed them as you went out, I dare say. An idea flashed upon me. I was firmly convinced at the time, you see, Rodion Romanovitch. Come, I thought, even if I let one thing slip for a time, I shall get hold of something else. I shan't lose what I want, anyway. You are nervously irritable, Rodion Romanovitch, by temperament. It's out of proportion with other qualities of your heart and character, which, I flatter myself, I have to some extent divined. Of course, I did reflect even then that it does not always happen that a man gets up and blurts out his whole story. It does happen sometimes, if you make a man lose all patience, though even then it's rare. I was capable of realizing that. If only I had a fact, I thought, the least little fact to go upon, something I could lay hold of, something tangible, not merely psychological. For if a man is guilty, you must be able to get something substantial out of him. One may reckon upon most surprising results indeed. I was reckoning upon your temperament, Rodion Romanovitch, on your temperament above all things. I had great hopes of you at that time." "'But what are you driving at now?' Raskolnikov muttered at last, asking the question without thinking. "'What is he talking about?' he wondered distractedly. "'Does he really take me to be innocent?' What am I driving at? I've come to explain myself. I consider it my duty, so to speak. I want to make clear to you how the whole business, the whole misunderstanding arose. I've caused you a great deal of suffering, Rodion Romanovitch. I am not a monster. I understand what it must mean for a man who has been unfortunate, but who is proud, imperious, and above all impatient, to have to bear such treatment. I regard you, in any case, as a man of noble character, and not without elements of magnanimity, though I don't agree with all your convictions. I wanted to tell you this first, frankly, and quite sincerely, for above all I don't want to deceive you. When I made your acquaintance I felt attracted by you. Perhaps you will laugh at my saying so. You have a right to. I know you disliked me from the first, and indeed you've no reason to like me. You may think what you like, but I desire now to do all I can to efface that impression, and to show that I am a man of heart and conscience. I speak sincerely." Porfiry Petrovitch made a dignified pause. Raskolnikov felt a rush of renewed alarm. The thought that Porfiry believed him to be innocent began to make him uneasy. "'It's scarcely necessary to go over everything in detail,' Porfiry Petrovitch went on. Indeed, I could scarcely attempt it. To begin with, there were rumors. Through whom, how and when those rumors came to me, and how they affected you, I need not go into. My suspicions were aroused by a complete accident, which might just as easily not have happened. What was it? Hmm. I believe there is no need to go into that either. Those rumors and that accident led to one idea in my mind. I admit it openly, for one may as well make a clean breast of it. I was the first to pitch on you. The old woman's notes on the pledges and the rest of it, that all came to nothing. Yours was one of a hundred. I happened, too, to hear of this scene at the office, from a man who described it capitally, unconsciously reproducing the scene with great vividness. It was just one thing after another, Rodion Romanovitch, my dear fellow. How could I avoid being brought to certain ideas? 
From a hundred rabbits you can't make a horse. A hundred suspicions don't make a proof, as the English proverb says, but that's only from the rational point of view. You can't help being partial, for after all a lawyer is only human. I thought, too, of your article in that journal. Do you remember, on your first visit we talked of it? I jeered at you at the time, but that was only to lead you on. I repeat, Rodion Romanovich, you are ill and impatient. That you were bold, headstrong, in earnest, and had felt a great deal I recognized long before. I too have felt the same, so that your article seemed familiar to me. It was conceived on sleepless nights, with a throbbing heart, in ecstasy and suppressed enthusiasm. And that proud suppressed enthusiasm in young people is dangerous. I jeered at you then, but let me tell you that, as a literary amateur, I am awfully fond of such first essays, full of the heat of youth. There is a mistiness and a chord vibrating in the mist. Your article is absurd and fantastic, but there's a transparent sincerity, a youthful incorruptible pride and the daring of despair in it. It's a gloomy article, but that's what's fine in it. I read your article and put it aside thinking as I did so, that man won't go the common way. Well, I ask you, after that as a preliminary, how could I help being carried away by what followed? Oh, dear, I am not saying anything, I am not making any statement now. I simply noted it at the time. What is there in it? I reflected. There's nothing in it. That is really nothing, and perhaps absolutely nothing and it's not at all the thing for the prosecutor to let himself be carried away by notions. Here I have Nikolai on my hands with actual evidence against him. You may think what you like of it, but it's evidence. He brings in his psychology too. One has to consider him too, for it's a matter of life and death. Why am I explaining this to you? That you may understand, and not blame my malicious behavior on that occasion. It was not malicious, I assure you, <laughs> Do you suppose I didn't come to search your room at the time? I did, I did, <laughs> I was here when you were lying ill in bed, not officially, not in my own person, but I was here. Your room was searched to the last thread at the first suspicion. But, omsonst, I thought to myself, now that man will come, will come of himself and quickly too. If he's guilty, he's sure to come. Another man wouldn't, but he will. And you remember how Mr. Razumian began discussing the subject with you? We arranged that to excite you, so we purposely spread rumors that he might discuss the case with you, and Razumian is not a man to restrain his indignation. Mr. Zamatov was tremendously struck by your anger and your open daring. Think of blurting out in a restaurant, I killed her. It was too daring, too reckless. I thought so myself. If he is guilty, he will be a formidable opponent. That was what I thought at the time. I was expecting you. But you simply bowled Zamatov over, and—well, you see, it all lies in this—that this damnable psychology can be taken two ways. Well, I kept expecting you, and so it was. You came. My heart was fairly throbbing. Ah! Now, why need you have come? Your laughter too as you came in, do you remember? I saw it all plain as daylight, 
but if I hadn't expected you so specially, I should not have noticed anything in your laughter. You see what influence a mood has. Mr. Razumian, then. Ah, that stone, that stone under which the things were hidden. I seem to see it somewhere in a kitchen garden. It was in a kitchen garden, you told Zamatov, and afterwards you repeated that in my office. And when we began picking your article to pieces, how you explained it! One could take every word of yours in two senses, as though there were another meaning hidden. So in this way, Rodion Romanovitch, I reached the furthest limit, and knocking my head against a post, I pulled myself up, asking myself what I was about. After all, I said, you can take it all in another sense if you like, and it's more natural so indeed. I couldn't help admitting it was more than natural. I was bothered. No, I'd better get hold of some little fact, I said. So when I heard of the bell ringing, I held my breath and was all in a tremor. Here is my little fact, thought I, and I didn't think it over, I simply wouldn't. I would have given a thousand roubles at that minute to have seen you with my own eyes, when you walked a hundred paces beside that workman, after he had called you a murderer to your face, and you did not dare to ask him a question all the way. And then what about your trembling, what about your bell-ringing in your illness, in semi-delirium? And so, Rodion Romanovitch, can you wonder that I played such pranks on you? And what made you come at that very minute? Someone seemed to have sent you by Jove. And if Nikolai had not parted us, and do you remember Nikolai at the time? Do you remember him clearly? It was a thunderbolt, a regular thunderbolt. And how I met him! I didn't believe in the thunderbolt, not for a minute. You could see it for yourself, and how could I? Even afterwards, when you had gone and he began making very, very plausible answers on certain points, so that I was surprised at him myself, even then I didn't believe his story. You see what it is to be as firm as a rock? No, thought I, Morganfrew. What has Nikolai got to do with it? Razumian told me just now that you think Nikolai guilty and had yourself assured him of it. His voice failed him, and he broke off. He had been listening in indescribable agitation, as this man, who had seen through and through him, went back upon himself. He was afraid of believing it and did not believe it. In those still ambiguous words he kept eagerly looking for something more definite and conclusive. "'Mr. Razumian!' cried Porfiry Petrovitch, seeming glad of a question from Raskolnikov, who had till then been silent. "'He, <laughs> he, But I had to put Mr. Razumian off. Two is company, three is none. Mr. Razumian is not the right man. Besides, he is an outsider. He came running to me with a pale face. But never mind him. Why bring him in? To return to Nikolai, would you like to know what sort of a type he is, how I understand him, that is? To begin with, he is still a child and not exactly a coward, but something by way of an artist. Really, don't laugh at my describing him so. He is innocent and responsive to influence. He has a heart and is a fantastic fellow. He sings and dances. He tells stories, they say, so that people come from other villages to hear him. He attends school, too, and laughs till he cries if you hold up a finger to him. 
he will drink himself senseless. Not as a regular vice, but at times, when people treat him like a child. And he stole, too, then, without knowing it himself. For how can it be stealing if one picks it up? And do you know he is an old believer, or rather a dissenter? There have been wanderers, a religious sect, in his family, and he was for two years in his village under the spiritual guidance of a certain elder. I learnt all this from Nikolai and from his fellow villagers. And what's more, he wanted to run into the wilderness. He was full of fervour, prayed at night, read the old books, the true ones, and read himself crazy. Petersburg had a great effect upon him, especially the women and the wine. He responds to everything, and he forgot the elder and all that. I learnt that an artist here took a fancy to him and used to go and see him, and now this business came upon him. Well, he was frightened. He tried to hang himself. He ran away. How can one get over the idea the people have of Russian legal proceedings? The very word trial frightens some of them. Whose fault is it? We shall see what the new juries will do. God grant they do good. Well, in prison, it seems, he remembered the venerable elder. The Bible, too, made its appearance again. Do you know, Rodion Romanovich, the force of the word suffering among some of these people? It's not a question of suffering for someone's benefit, but simply one must suffer. If they suffer at the hands of the authorities, so much the better. In my time there was a very meek and mild prisoner, who spent a whole year in prison always reading his Bible on the stove at night, and he read himself crazy. And so crazy, do you know, that one day, apropos of nothing, he seized a brick and flung it at the governor, though he had done him no harm and the way he threw it, too, aimed it a yard on one side on purpose, for fear of hurting him. Well, we know what happens to a prisoner who assaults an officer with a weapon. So he took his suffering. So I suspect now that Nikolai wants to take his suffering or something of the sort. I know it for certain from facts, indeed. Only he doesn't know that I know. What, you don't admit that there are such fantastic people among the peasants? Lots of them. The elder now has begun influencing him, especially since he tried to hang himself. But he'll come and tell me all himself. You think he'll hold out? Wait a bit. He'll take his words back. I am waiting from hour to hour for him to come and abjure his evidence. I have come to like that Nikolai, and am studying him in detail. And what do you think? <laughs> he answered me very plausibly on some points. He obviously had collected some evidence and prepared himself cleverly. But on other points he is simply at sea, knows nothing, and doesn't even suspect that he doesn't know. No, Rodion Romanovich, Nikolai doesn't come in. This is a fantastic, gloomy business, a modern case, an incident of today when the heart of man is troubled. When the phrase is quoted that blood renews, one comfort is preached as the aim of life. Here we have bookish dreams, a heart unhinged by theories. Here we see resolution in the first stage, but resolution of a special kind. He resolved to do it like jumping over a precipice or from a bell-tower, and his legs shook as he went to the crime. He forgot to shut the door after him and murdered two people for a theory. He committed the murder and couldn't take the money, 
and what he did manage to snatch up he hid under a stone. It wasn't enough for him to suffer agony behind the door while they battered at the door and rung the bell. No, he had to go to the empty lodging, half delirious, to recall the bell ringing. He wanted to feel the cold shiver over again. Well, that we grant was through illness. But consider this. He is a murderer, but looks upon himself as an honest man, despises others, poses as injured innocence. No, that's not the work of a Nikolai, my dear Rodion Romanovitch." All that had been said before had sounded so like a recantation that these words were too great a shock. Raskolnikov shuddered as though he had been stabbed. Then, who then, is the murderer? he asked in a breathless voice, unable to restrain himself. Porfiry Petrovitch sank back in his chair, as though he were amazed at the question. "'Who is the murderer?' he repeated, as though unable to believe his ears. "'Why, you, Rodion Romanovitch, you are the murderer,' he added, almost in a whisper, in a voice of genuine conviction. Raskolnikov leapt from the sofa, stood up for a few seconds and sat down again without uttering a word. His face twitched convulsively. "'Your lip is twitching, just as it did before,' Porfiry Petrovitch observed almost sympathetically. "'You've been misunderstanding me, I think, Rodion Romanovitch,' he added after a brief pause. "'That's why you're so surprised. I came on purpose to tell you everything and deal openly with you.' "'It was not I murdered her,' Raskolnikov whispered, like a frightened child caught in the act. "'No, it was you, you, Rodion Romanovitch, and no one else,' Porfiry whispered sternly, with conviction. They were both silent, and the silence lasted strangely long, about ten minutes. Raskolnikov put his elbow on the table and passed his fingers through his hair. Porfiry Petrovitch sat quietly waiting. Suddenly Raskolnikov looked scornfully at Porfiry. "'You are at your old tricks again, Porfiry Petrovitch! Your old method again! I wonder you don't get sick of it!' "'Oh, stop that! What does that matter now? It would be a different matter if there were witnesses present, but we are whispering alone. You see yourself that I have not come to chase and capture you like a hare. Whether you confess it or not is nothing to me now. For myself, I am convinced without it." "'If so, what did you come for?' Raskolnikov asked irritably. "'I ask you the same question again. If you consider me guilty, why don't you take me to prison?' "'Oh, that's your question. I will answer you point for point. In the first place, to arrest you so directly is not to my interest." "'How so?' If you are convinced, you ought. Ah, what if I am convinced? That's only my dream for the time. Why should I put you in safety? You know that's it, since you ask me to do it. If I confront you with that workman, for instance, and you say to him, Were you drunk or not? Who saw me with you? I simply took you to be drunk, and you were drunk, too. Well, what could I answer? Especially as your story is a more likely one than his for there's nothing but psychology to support his evidence. That's almost unseemly with his ugly mug, while you hit the mark exactly, 
for the rascal is an inveterate drunkard and notoriously so. And I have myself admitted candidly several times already that that psychology can be taken in two ways, and that the second way is stronger and looks far more probable, and that apart from that I have as yet nothing against you. And though I shall put you in prison, and indeed have come, quite contrary to etiquette, to inform you of it beforehand, yet I tell you frankly, also contrary to etiquette, that it won't be to my advantage. Well, secondly, I've come to you because—' "'Yes, yes, secondly,' Raskolnikov was listening breathless. "'Because, as I told you just now, I consider I owe you an explanation. I don't want you to look upon me as a monster, as I have a genuine liking for you. You may believe me or not. And in the third place, I've come to you with a direct and open proposition. That you should surrender and confess. It will be infinitely more to your advantage, and to my advantage too, for my task will be done. Well, is this open on my part or not?" Raskolnikov thought a minute. "'Listen, Porfiry Petrovitch. You said just now you have nothing but psychology to go on, yet now you've gone on mathematics. Well, what if you are mistaken yourself now?' "'No, Rodion Romanovitch, I am not mistaken. I have a little fact even then, Providence sent it me. What little fact? I won't tell you what, Rodion Romanovitch. And in any case, I haven't the right to put it off any longer. I must arrest you. So think it over. It makes no difference to me now, and so I speak only for your sake. Believe me, it will be better, Rodion Romanovitch. Raskolnikov smiled malignantly. That's not simply ridiculous, it's positively shameless. Why, even if I were guilty, which I don't admit, what reason should I have to confess, when you tell me yourself that I shall be in greater safety in prison?" Ah, uh, Rodion Romanovitch, don't put too much faith in words. Perhaps prison will not be altogether a restful place. That's only theory, and my theory. And what authority am I for you? Perhaps, too, even now I am hiding something from you. I can't lay bare everything, he-he. <laughs> and how can you ask what advantage? Don't you know how it would lessen your sentence? You would be confessing at a moment when another man has taken the crime on himself, and so has muddled the whole case. Consider that. I swear before God that I will so arrange that your confession shall come as a complete surprise. We will make a clean sweep of all the psychological points, of a suspicion against you so that your crime will appear to have been something like an aberration, for in truth it was an aberration. I am an honest man, Rodion Romanovitch, and will keep my word." Raskolnikov maintained a mournful silence and let his head sink dejectedly. He pondered a long while, and at last smiled again, but his smile was sad and gentle. "'No,' he said, apparently abandoning all attempt to keep up appearances with Porfiry. It's not worth it. I don't care about lessening the sentence." "'That's just what I was afraid of,' Porfiry cried warmly, and as it seemed involuntarily. "'That's just what I feared, that you wouldn't care about the mitigation of sentence.' Raskolnikov looked sadly and expressively at him. "'Ah, don't disdain life,' Porfiry went on. "'You have a great deal of it still before you. How can you say you don't want a mitigation of sentence?' 
You are an impatient fellow. A great deal of what lies before me? Of life. What sort of prophet are you? Do you know much about it? Seek and ye shall find. This may be God's means for bringing you to Him. And it's not forever, the bondage." "'The time will be shortened,' laughed Raskolnikov. "'Why, is it the bourgeois disgrace you are afraid of? It may be that you are afraid of it without knowing it, because you are young. But anyway, you shouldn't be afraid of giving yourself up and confessing.' "'Ah, hang it!' Raskolnikov whispered with loathing and contempt, as though he did not want to speak aloud. He got up again as though he meant to go away, but sat down again in evident despair. "'Hang it if you like. You've lost faith, and you think that I am grossly flattering you. But how long has your life been? How much do you understand? You made up a theory, and then were ashamed that it broke down and turned out to be not at all original.' It turned out something base, that's true, but you are not hopelessly base. By no means base. At least you didn't deceive yourself for long, you went straight to the furthest point at one bound. How do I regard you? I regard you as one of those men who would stand and smile at their torturer while he cuts their entrails out, if only they have found faith or God. Find it, and you will live. You have long needed a change of air. Suffering, too, is a good thing. Suffer! Maybe Nikolai is right in wanting to suffer. I know you don't believe in it, but don't be overwise. Fling yourself straight into life, without deliberation. Don't be afraid. The flood will bear you to the bank and set you safe on your feet again. What bank? How can I tell? I only believe that you have long life before you. I know that you take all my words now for a set speech prepared beforehand, but maybe you will remember them after. They may be of use some time. That's why I speak. It's as well that you only kill the old woman. If you'd invented another theory, you might perhaps have done something a thousand times more hideous. You ought to thank God, perhaps. How do you know? Perhaps God is saving you for something. But keep a good heart and have less fear. Are you afraid of the great expiation before you? No, it would be shameful to be afraid of it. Since you have taken such a step, you must harden your heart. There is justice in it. You must fulfill the demands of justice. I know that you don't believe it, but indeed, life will bring you through. You will live it down in time. What you need now is fresh air, fresh air, fresh air. Raskolnikov positively started. "'But who are you? What prophet are you? From the height of what majestic calm do you proclaim these words of wisdom?' "'Who am I? I am a man with nothing to hope for, that's all. A man perhaps of feeling and sympathy, maybe of some knowledge, too. But my day is over. But you are a different matter. There is life waiting for you. Though, who knows?' Maybe your life, too, will pass off in smoke and come to nothing. Come, what does it matter, that you will pass into another class of men? It's not comfort you regret, with your heart. What of it that perhaps no one will see you for so long? It's not time, but yourself that will decide that. Be the sun, and all will see you. The sun has before all to be the sun. Why are you smiling again? 
at my being such a shiller? I bet you're imagining that I'm trying to get round you by flattery. Well, perhaps I am. <laughs> perhaps you'd better not believe my word. Perhaps you'd better never believe it altogether. I'm made that way, I confess it. But let me add, you can judge for yourself, I think, how far I am a base sort of man, and how far I am honest. When do you mean to arrest me? Well, I can let you walk about another day or two. Think it over, my dear fellow, and pray to God. It's more in your interest, believe me." "'And what if I run away?' asked Raskolnikov, with a strange smile. "'No, you won't run away. A peasant would run away, a fashionable dissenter would run away, the flunky of another man's thought, for you've only to show him the end of your little finger and he'll be ready to believe in anything for the rest of his life. But you've ceased to believe in your theory already. What will you run away with? And what will you do in hiding? It will be hateful and difficult for you, and what you need more than anything in life is a definite position, an atmosphere to suit you. And what sort of atmosphere would you have? If you ran away, you'd come back yourself. You can't get on without us. And if I put you in prison, say you've been there a month or two or three, remember my word, you'll confess of yourself and perhaps to your own surprise. You won't know an hour beforehand that you are coming with a confession. I am convinced that you will decide to take your suffering. You don't believe my words now, but you'll come to it of yourself. For suffering, Rodion Romanovitch, is a great thing. Never mind my having grown fat, I know all the same. Don't laugh at it, there's an idea in suffering. Nikolai is right. No, you won't run away, Rodion Romanovitch. Raskolnikov got up and took his cap. Porfiry Petrovitch also rose. Are you going for a walk? The evening will be fine, if only we don't have a storm. Though it would be a good thing to freshen the air. He too took his cap. Porfiry Petrovitch, please don't take up the notion that I have confessed to you today, Raskolnikov pronounced with sullen insistence. You're a strange man, and I have listened to you from simple curiosity but I have admitted nothing, remember that. Oh, I know that, I'll remember. Look at him, he's trembling. Don't be uneasy, my dear fellow, have it your own way. Walk about a bit, you won't be able to walk too far. If anything happens, I'll have one request to make of you," he added, dropping his voice. It's an awkward one, but important. If anything were to happen, though indeed I don't believe in it and think you quite incapable of it. Yet in case you were taken during these forty or fifty hours with the notion of putting an end to the business in some other way, in some fantastic fashion, laying hands on yourself, it's an absurd proposition, but you must forgive me for it, do leave a brief but precise note, only two lines, and mention the stone. It will be more generous. Come, till we meet good thoughts and sound decisions to you." Porfiry went out, stooping and avoiding looking at Raskolnikov. The latter went to the window and waited with irritable impatience till he calculated that Porfiry had reached the street and moved away. Then he too went hurriedly out of the room. End of Part 6 Chapter 2
of Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky, translated by Constance Garnett, 1861-1946. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 6, Chapter 3 He hurried to Svidrigailov's. What he had to hope from that man he did not know. But that man had some hidden power over him. Having once recognized this, he could not rest, and now the time had come. On the way, one question particularly worried him. Had Svidrigailov been to Porfiry's? As far as he could judge, he would swear to it that he had not. He pondered again and again, went over Porfiry's visit. No, he hadn't been, of course he hadn't. But if he had not been yet, would he go? Meanwhile, for the present, he fancied he couldn't. Why? He could not have explained. But if he could, he would not have wasted much thought over it at the moment. It all worried him, and at the same time he could not attend to it. Strange to say, none would have believed it, perhaps, but he only felt a faint vague anxiety about his immediate future. Another, much more important anxiety tormented him. It concerned himself, but in a different, more vital way. Moreover, he was conscious of immense moral fatigue, though his mind was working better that morning than it had done of late. And was it worth while, after all that had happened, to contend with these new, trivial difficulties? Was it worth while, for instance, to maneuver that Svidrigailov should not go to Porfiry's? Was it worth while to investigate, to ascertain the facts, to waste time over anyone like Svidrigailov? Oh, how sick he was of it all! And yet he was hastening to Svidrigailov. Could he be expecting something new from him, information or means of escape? Men will catch at straws. Was it destiny or some instinct bringing them together? Perhaps it was only fatigue, despair. Perhaps it was not Svidrigailov, but some other whom he needed, and Svidrigailov had simply presented himself by chance. Sonia? But what should he go to Sonia for now? to beg her tears again? He was afraid of Sonia, too. Sonia stood before him as an irrevocable sentence. He must go his own way or hers. At that moment especially he did not feel equal to seeing her. No, would it not be better to try Svidrigailov? And he could not help inwardly owning that he had long felt that he must see him for some reason. But what could they have in common? Their very evil-doing could not be of the same kind. The man, moreover, was very unpleasant, evidently depraved, undoubtedly cunning and deceitful, possibly malignant. Such stories were told about him. It is true he was befriending Katerina Ivanovna's children, but who could tell with what motive and what it meant? The man always had some design, some project. There was another thought which had been continually hovering of late about Raskolnikov's mind, and causing him great uneasiness. It was so painful that he made distinct efforts to get rid of it. He sometimes thought that Svidrigailov was dogging his footsteps. Svidrigailov had found out his secret and had had designs on Donia. What if he had them still? Wasn't it practically certain that he had? And what if, having learnt his secret and so having gained power over him, he were to use it as a weapon against Donia? This idea sometimes even tormented his dreams but it had never presented itself so vividly to him as on his way to Svidrigailov. 
the very thought moved him to gloomy rage. To begin with, this would transform everything, even his own position. He would have at once to confess his secret to Donia. Would he have to give himself up, perhaps, to prevent Donia from taking some rash step? The letter? This morning Donia had received a letter. From whom could she get letters in Petersburg? Lusion, perhaps? It's true Razumian was there to protect her, but Razumian knew nothing of the position. Perhaps it was his duty to tell Razumian. He thought of it with repugnance. In any case, he must cease Vidragailov as soon as possible, he decided finally. Thank God the details of the interview were of little consequence, if only he could get at the root of the matter. But if Svidrigailov were capable, if he were intriguing against Donia, then— Raskolnikov was so exhausted by what he had passed through that month that he could only decide such questions in one way. Then I shall kill him, he thought in cold despair. A sudden anguish oppressed his heart. He stood in the middle of the street and began looking about to see where he was and which way he was going. He found himself in X prospect thirty or forty paces from the haymarket, through which he had come. The whole second story of the house on the left was used as a tavern. All the windows were wide open. Judging from the figures moving at the windows, the rooms were full to overflowing. There were sounds of singing, of clarinet and violin, and the boom of a Turkish drum. He could hear women shrieking. He was about to turn back, wondering why he had come to the ex-prospect, when suddenly at one of the end windows he saw Svidrigailov, sitting at a tea-table right in the open window with a pipe in his mouth. Raskolnikov was dreadfully taken aback, almost terrified. Svidrigailov was silently watching and scrutinizing him, and, what struck Raskolnikov at once, seemed to be meaning to get up and slipped away unobserved. Raskolnikov at once pretended not to have seen him, but to be looking absent-mindedly away while he watched him out of the corner of his eye. His heart was beating violently. Yet it was evident that Svidrigailov did not want to be seen. He took the pipe out of his mouth and was on the point of concealing himself, but as he got up and moved back his chair, he seemed to have become suddenly aware that Raskolnikov had seen him, and was watching him. What had passed between them was much the same as what happened at their first meeting in Raskolnikov's room. A sly smile came to Svidrigailov's face, and grew broader and broader. Each knew that he was seen and watched by the other. At last Svidrigailov broke into a loud laugh. "'Well, well, come in if you want me. I am here!' he shouted from the window. Raskolnikov went up into the tavern. He found Svidrigailov in a tiny back room, adjoining the saloon in which merchants, clerks, and numbers of people of all sorts were drinking tea at twenty little tables to the desperate bawling of a chorus of singers. The click of billiard-balls could be heard in the distance. On the table before Svidrigailov stood an open bottle and a glass half full of champagne. In the room he found also a boy with a little hand-organ, a healthy-looking red-cheeked girl of eighteen, wearing a tucked-up striped skirt and a Tyrolese hat with ribbons. In spite of the chorus in the other room, she was singing some servant's hall song in a rather husky contralto, to the accompaniment of the organ. "'Come, that's enough!' Svidrigailov stopped her at Raskolnikov's entrance. The girl at once broke off and stood waiting respectfully. 
She had sung her guttural rhymes, too, with a serious and respectful expression in her face. "'Hey, Philippe, a glass!' shouted Svidrigailov. "'I won't drink anything,' said Raskolnikov. "'As you like, I didn't mean it for you. Drink, Katya. I don't want anything more today. You can go.' He poured her out a full glass and laid down a yellow note. Katya drank off her glass of wine, as women do, without putting it down, in twenty gulps, took the note and kissed Svidrigailov's hand, which he allowed quite seriously. She went out of the room and the boy trailed after her with the organ. Both had been brought in from the street. Svidrigailov had not been a week in Petersburg, but everything about him was already, so to speak, on a patriarchal footing. The waiter, Philippe, was by now an old friend and very obsequious. The door leading to the saloon had a lock on it. Svidrigailov was at home in this room, and perhaps spent whole days in it. The tavern was dirty and wretched, not even second-rate. "'I was going to see you and looking for you,' Raskolnikov began. "'But I don't know what made me turn from the haymarket into the ex-prospect just now. I never take this turning. I turn to the right from the haymarket. And this isn't the way to you. I simply turned and here you are.' It is strange. Why don't you say at once, it's a miracle? Because it may be only chance. Oh, that's the way with all you folk, laughed Svidrigailov. You won't admit it, even if you do inwardly believe it a miracle. Here you say that it may be only a chance. And what cowards they all are here, about having an opinion of their own, you can't fancy, Rodion Romanovitch. I don't mean you. You have an opinion of your own and are not afraid to have it. That's how it was you attracted my curiosity." "'Nothing else?' "'Well, that's enough, you know.' Svidrigailov was obviously exhilarated, but only slightly so. He had not had more than a half-glass of wine. "'I fancy you came to see me before you knew that I was capable of having what you call an opinion of my own,' observed Raskolnikov. Oh, well, it was a different matter. Everyone has his own plans. And, apropos of the miracle, let me tell you that I think you have been asleep for the last two or three days. I told you of this tavern myself. There is no miracle in your coming straight here. I explained the way myself, told you where it was, and the hours you could find me here. Do you remember?" I don't remember, answered Raskolnikov with surprise. I believe you. I told you twice. The address has been stamped mechanically on your memory. You turned this way mechanically, and yet precisely according to the direction, though you were not aware of it. When I told you then, I hardly hoped you understood me. You give yourself away too much, Rodion Romanovitch. And another thing, I'm convinced there are lots of people in Petersburg who talk to themselves as they walk. This is a town of crazy people. If only we had scientific men, doctors, lawyers, and philosophers, might make most valuable investigations in Petersburg, each in his own line. There are few places where there are so many gloomy, strong, and queer influences on the soul of man as in Petersburg. The mere influences of climate mean so much. And it's the administrative center of all Russia, and its character must be reflected on the whole country. But that's neither here nor there now. The point is that I have several times watched you. You walk out of your house, holding your head high. Twenty paces from home you let it sink and fold your hands behind your back. 
You look and evidently see nothing before nor beside you. At last you begin moving your lips and talking to yourself, and sometimes you wave one hand and declaim, and at last stand still in the middle of the road. That's not at all the thing. Someone may be watching you besides me, and it won't do you any good. It's nothing really to do with me, and I can't cure you of it, but, of course, you understand me." "'Do you know that I am being followed?' asked Raskolnikov, looking inquisitively at him. "'No, I know nothing about it,' said Svidrigailov, seeming surprised. "'Well, then, let us leave me alone,' Raskolnikov muttered, frowning. "'Very good. Let us leave you alone.' "'You had better tell me, if you come here to drink, and directed me twice to come here to you, why did you hide, and try to get away just now when I looked at the window from the street? I saw it.' "'Ha-ha! <laughs> and why was it you lay on your sofa with closed eyes and pretended to be asleep, though you were wide awake while I stood in your doorway? I saw it.' "'I may have had reasons. You know that yourself.' and I may have had my reasons, though you don't know them." Raskolnikov dropped his right elbow on the table, leaned his chin in the fingers of his right hand, and stared intently at Svidrigailov. For a full minute he scrutinized his face, which had impressed him before. It was a strange face, like a mask, white and red, with bright red lips, with a flaxen beard and still thick flaxen hair. His eyes were somehow too blue and their expression somehow too heavy and fixed. There was something awfully unpleasant in that handsome face, which looked so wonderfully young for his age. Svidrigailov was smartly dressed in light summer clothes, and was particularly dainty in his linen. He wore a huge ring with a precious stone in it. "'Have I got to bother myself about you too now?' said Raskolnikov suddenly, coming with nervous impatience straight to the point. Even though, perhaps, you are the most dangerous man if you care to injure me, I don't want to put myself out any more. I will show you at once that I don't prize myself as you probably think I do. I've come to tell you at once that if you keep to your former intentions with regard to my sister, and if you think to derive any benefit in that direction from what has been discovered of late, I will kill you before you get me locked up. You can reckon on my word. You know that I can keep it. And in the second place, if you want to tell me anything, for I keep fancying all this time that you have something to tell me, make haste and tell it, for time is precious and very likely it will soon be too late." "'Why in such haste?' asked Svidrigailov, looking at him curiously. "'Everyone has his plans,' Raskolnikov answered gloomily and impatiently. "'You urged me yourself to frankness just now, and at the first question you refused to answer.' Svidrigailov observed with a smile. You keep fancying that I have aims of my own, and so you look at me with suspicion. Of course, it's perfectly natural in your position. But though I should like to be friends with you, I shan't trouble myself to convince you of the contrary. The game isn't worth the candle, and I wasn't intending to talk to you about anything special." "'What do you want me for, then? It was you who came hanging about me why, simply as an interesting subject for observation. I liked the fantastic nature of your position, that's what it was. Besides, you are the brother of a person who greatly interested me, and from that person I had in the past heard a very great deal about you, from which I gathered that you had a great influence over her, 
Isn't that enough? Ha, ha, ha! Still, I must admit that your question is rather complex and is difficult for me to answer. Here you, for instance, have come to me not only for a definite object, but for the sake of hearing something new. Isn't that so? Isn't that so?" persisted Svidrigailov with a sly smile. Well, can't you fancy then that I too, on my way here in the train, was reckoning on you, on your telling me something new, and on my making some profit out of you? You see what rich men we are! What profit could you make? How can I tell you? How do I know? You see in what a tavern I spend all my time, and it's my enjoyment. That's to say, it's no great enjoyment, but one must sit somewhere. That poor Katya now, you saw her? If only I had been a glutton now, a club gourmand, but, you see, I can eat this." He pointed to a little table in the corner where the remnants of a terrible-looking beefsteak and potatoes lay on a tin dish. Have you dined, by the way? I've had something and want nothing more. I don't drink, for instance, at all. Except for champagne, I never touch anything, and not more than a glass of that all the evening, and even that is enough to make my head ache. I ordered it just now to wind myself up, for I am just going off somewhere, and you see me in a peculiar state of mind. That was why I hid myself just now like a schoolboy, for I was afraid you would hinder me. But I believe, he pulled out his watch, I can spend an hour with you. It's half-past four now. If only I'd been something, a landowner, a father, a cavalry officer, a photographer, a journalist. I am nothing, no specialty, and sometimes I am positively bored. I really thought you would tell me something new. But what are you, and why have you come here? What am I? You know, a gentleman. I served for two years in the cavalry. Then I knocked about here in Petersburg. Then I married Marfa Petrovna and lived in the country. There, you have my biography. You are a gambler, I believe? No, a poor sort of gambler. A card-sharper, not a gambler. You have been a card-sharper, then? Yes, I've been a card-sharper, too. Didn't you get thrashed sometimes? It did happen. Why? Why, you might have challenged them. Altogether, it must have been lively. I won't contradict you. And besides, I am no hand at philosophy. I confess that I hastened here for the sake of the women. As soon as you buried Marfa Petrovna? Quite so. Svidrigailov smiled with engaging candor. What of it? You seem to find something wrong in my speaking like that about women. You ask whether I find anything wrong in vice? Vice? Oh, that's what you are after. But I'll answer you in order. First, about women in general. You know I am fond of talking. Tell me, what should I restrain myself for? Why should I give up women, since I have a passion for them? It's an occupation, anyway. So you hope for nothing here but vice? Oh, very well, for vice, then. You insist on its being vice. But, anyway, I'd like a direct question. In this vice, at least, there is something permanent founded indeed upon nature, and not dependent on fantasy, something present in the blood like an ever-burning ember, forever setting one on fire, and, maybe, not to be quickly extinguished, even with years. You'll agree, it's an occupation of a sort. That's nothing to rejoice at. It's a disease, and a dangerous one. Oh, that's what you think, is it? I agree. 
that it is a disease like everything that exceeds moderation. And, of course, in this one must exceed moderation. But in the first place, everybody does so in one way or another, and in the second place, of course, one ought to be moderate and prudent, however mean it may be. But what am I to do? If I hadn't this, I might have to shoot myself. I am ready to admit that a decent man ought to put up with being bored, but yet... And could you shoot yourself? Oh, come! Svidrigailov parried with disgust. Please, don't speak of it! He added hurriedly, and with none of the bragging tone he had shown in all the previous conversation. His face quite changed. I admit it's an unpardonable weakness, but I can't help it. I am afraid of death, and I dislike its being talked of. Do you know that I am to a certain extent a mystic? Ah, the apparitions of Marfa Petrovna! Do they still go on visiting you? Oh, don't talk of them. There have been no more in Petersburg, confound them!" he cried with an air of irritation. Let's rather talk of that. Though, hm, I have not much time and can't stay long with you, it's a pity. I should have found plenty to tell you. What's your engagement? A woman? Yes, a woman, a casual incident. No, that's not what I want to talk of. And the hideousness, the filthiness of all your surroundings, doesn't that affect you? Have you lost the strength to stop yourself? And do you pretend to strength, too? <laughs> you surprise me just now, Rodion Romanovitch, though I knew beforehand it would be so. You preach to me about vice and aesthetics. You, a Schiller, you, an idealist. Of course, that's all as it should be, and it would be surprising if it were not so. Yet it is strange in reality. Ah, uh, what a pity I have no time, for you're a most interesting type. And, by the way, are you fond of Schiller? I am awfully fond of him." "'But what a braggart you are!' Raskolnikov said with some disgust. "'Upon my word I am not,' answered Svidrigailov, laughing. "'However, I won't dispute it. Let me be a braggart. Why not brag, if it hurts no one? I spent seven years in the country with Marfa Petrovna. So now when I come across an intelligent person like you, intelligent and highly interesting, I am simply glad to talk, and besides, I have drunk that half-glass of champagne and it's gone to my head a little, and besides, there's a certain fact that has wound me up tremendously, but about that I will keep quiet." "'Where are you off to?' he asked in alarm. Raskolnikov had begun getting up. He felt oppressed and stifled, and, as it were, ill at ease at having come here. He felt convinced that Svidrigailov was the most worthless scoundrel on the face of the earth. "'Ah, sit down, stay a little,' Svidrigailov begged. "'Let them bring you some tea, anyway. Stay a little. I won't talk nonsense, about myself, I mean. I'll tell you something. If you like, I'll tell you how a woman tried to save me, as you would call it. It will be an answer to your first question, indeed for the woman was your sister. May I tell you? It will help to spend the time." "'Tell me. But I trust that you—oh, don't be uneasy. Besides, even in a worthless low fellow like me, Avadotya Romanovna can only excite the deepest respect." End of Part 6 Chapter 3
Part Six, Chapter Four of Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky, translated by Constance Garnett, eighteen sixty one to nineteen forty six. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Six, Chapter Four. You know, perhaps, yes, I told you myself, began Svidrigailov, that I was in the debtor's prison here for an immense sum and had not any expectation of being able to pay it. There's no need to go into particulars how Marfa Petrovna bought me out. Do you know to what a point of insanity a woman can sometimes love? She was an honest woman, and very sensible, although completely uneducated. Would you believe that this honest and jealous woman, after many scenes of hysterics and reproaches, condescended to enter into a kind of contract with me which she kept throughout our married life? She was considerably older than I, and besides, she always kept a clove or something in her mouth. There was so much swinishness in my soul, and honesty too of a sort, as to tell her straight out that I couldn't be absolutely faithful to her. This confession drove her to frenzy, but yet she seems in a way to have liked my brutal frankness. She thought it showed I was unwilling to deceive her if I warned her like this beforehand and for a jealous woman, you know, that's the first consideration. After many tears an unwritten contract was drawn up between us. First, that I would never leave Marfa Petrovna and would always be her husband. Secondly, that I would never absent myself without her permission. Thirdly, that I would never set up a permanent mistress. Fourthly, in return for this, Marfa Petrovna gave me a free hand with the maidservants, but only with her secret knowledge. Fifthly, God forbid my falling in love with a woman of our class. Sixthly, in case I, which God forbid, should be visited by a great serious passion, I was bound to reveal it to Marfa Petrovna. On this last score, however, Marfa Petrovna was fairly at ease. She was a sensible woman, and so she could not help looking upon me as a dissolute profligate, incapable of real love but a sensible woman and a jealous woman are two very different things, and that's where the trouble came in. But to judge some people impartially we must renounce certain preconceived opinions, and our habitual attitude to the ordinary people about us. I have reason to have faith in your judgment rather than anyone's. Perhaps you have already heard a great deal that was ridiculous and absurd about Marfa Petrovna. She certainly had some very ridiculous ways but I tell you frankly that I feel really sorry for the innumerable woes of which I was the cause. Well, and that's enough, I think, by way of a decorous oraison funebre for the most tender wife of a most tender husband. When we quarrelled I usually held my tongue and did not irritate her, and that gentlemanly conduct rarely failed to attain its object. It influenced her, it pleased her indeed. These were times when she was positively proud of me but your sister she couldn't put up with anyway. And however she came to risk taking such a beautiful creature into her house as a governess. My explanation is that Marfa Petrovna was an ardent and impressionable woman, and simply fell in love herself, literally fell in love with your sister. Well, little wonder, look at Avdotya Romanovna. I saw the danger at the first glance, and what do you think? I resolved not to look at her even. But Avdotya Romanovna herself made the first step, would you believe it? 
Would you believe it, too, that Marfa Petrovna was positively angry with me at first, for my persistent silence about your sister, for my careless reception of her continual adoring praises of Adotya Romanovna? I don't know what it was she wanted. Well, of course, Marfa Petrovna told Avdotya Romanovna every detail about me. She had the unfortunate habit of telling literally everyone all our family secrets and continually complaining of me. How could she fail to confide in such a delightful new friend? I expect they talked of nothing else but me, and no doubt Avdotya Romanovna heard all those dark, mysterious rumors that were current about me. I don't mind betting that you too have heard something of the sort already. I have. Luzhin charged you with having caused the death of a child. Is that true?" "'Don't refer to those vulgar tales, I beg,' said Svidrigailov with disgust and annoyance. "'If you insist on wanting to know about all that idiocy, I will tell you one day. But now—' "'I was told, too, about some footman of yours in the country whom you treated badly.' I beg you to drop the subject," Svidrigailov interrupted again with obvious impatience. "'Was that the footman who came to you after death to fill your pipe? You told me about it yourself,' Raskolnikov felt more and more irritated. Svidrigailov looked at him attentively, and Raskolnikov fancied he caught a flash of spiteful mockery in that look. But Svidrigailov restrained himself and answered very civilly, "'Yes, it was.' I see that you, too, are extremely interested, and shall feel it my duty to satisfy your curiosity at the first opportunity. Upon my soul, I see that I really might pass for a romantic figure with some people. Judge how graceful I must be to Marfa Petrovna for having repeated to Avdotya Romanovna such mysterious and interesting gossip about me. I dare not guess what impression it made on her but, in any case, it worked in my interests. With all Avdotya Romanovna's natural aversion and in spite of my invariably gloomy and repellent aspect, she did at least feel pity for me, pity for a lost soul. And if once a girl's heart is moved to pity, it's more generous than anything. She is bound to want to save him, to bring him to his senses, and lift him up and draw him to nobler aims, to restore him to new life and usefulness. Well, we all know how far such dreams can go. I saw at once that the bird was flying into the cage of herself. And I too made ready. I think you are frowning, Rodion Romanovich. There's no need. As you know, it all ended in smoke. Hang it all, what a lot I am drinking! Do you know, I always, from the very beginning, regretted that it wasn't your sister's fate to be born in the second or third century A.D., as the daughter of a reigning prince, or some governor or proconsul in Asia Minor. She would undoubtedly have been one of those who would endure martyrdom and would have smiled when they branded her bosom with hot pincers, and she would have gone to it of herself, and in the fourth or fifth century she would have walked away into the Egyptian desert and would have stayed there thirty years living on roots and ecstasies and visions. She is simply thirsting to face some torture for someone, and if she can't get her torture, she'll throw herself out of a window. I've heard something of a Mr. Razumian. He's said to be a sensible fellow. His surname suggests it, indeed. He's probably a divinity student. Well, he'd better look after your sister. I believe I understand her, and I am proud of it. 
but at the beginning of an acquaintance, as you know, one is apt to be more heedless and stupid. One doesn't see clearly. Hang it all, why is she so handsome? It's not my fault. In fact, it began on my side with a most irresistible physical desire. Avdotya Romanovna is awfully chaste, incredibly and phenomenally so. Take note, I tell you this about your sister as a fact. She is almost morbidly chaste, in spite of her broad intelligence, and it will stand in her way. There happened to be a girl in the house then, Parasha, a black-eyed wench whom I had never seen before, she had just come from another village, very pretty, but incredibly stupid. She burst into tears, wailed so that she could be heard all over the place and caused scandal. One day after dinner Evdotya Romanovna followed me into an avenue in the garden, and with flashing eyes insisted on my leaving poor Parasha alone. It was almost our first conversation by ourselves. I, of course, was only too pleased to obey her wishes, tried to appear disconcerted, embarrassed, in fact, played my part not badly. Then came interviews, mysterious conversations, exhortations, entreaties, supplications, even tears, would you believe it, even tears. Think what the passion for propaganda will bring some girls to. I, of course, threw it all on my destiny, posed as hungering and thirsting for light, and finally resorted to the most powerful weapon in the subjection of the female heart, a weapon which never fails one. It's the well-known resource, flattery. Nothing in the world is harder than speaking the truth, and nothing easier than flattery. If there's the hundredth part of a false note in speaking the truth, it leads to a discord, and that leads to trouble. But if all to the last note is false in flattery, it is just as agreeable, and is heard not without satisfaction. It may be a coarse satisfaction, but still a satisfaction. And however coarse the flattery, at least half will be sure to seem true. That's so for all stages of development and classes of society. A vestal virgin might be seduced by flattery. I can never remember without laughter how I once seduced a lady who was devoted to her husband, her children, and her principles. What fun it was, and how little trouble! And the lady really had principles, of her own, anyway. All my tactics lay in simply being utterly annihilated and prostrate before her purity. I flattered her shamelessly, and as soon as I succeeded in getting a pressure of the hand, even a glance from her, I would reproach myself for having snatched it by force, and would declare that she had resisted, so that I could never have gained anything but for my being so unprincipled. I maintained that she was so innocent that she could not foresee my treachery, and yielded to me unconsciously, unawares and so on. In fact, I triumphed, while my lady remained firmly convinced that she was innocent, chaste, and faithful to all her duties and obligations, and had succumbed quite by accident. And how angry she was with me when I explained to her at last that it was my sincere conviction that she was just as eager as I! Poor Marfa Petrovna was awfully weak on the side of flattery, and if I had only cared to, I might have had all her property settled on me during her lifetime. I am drinking an awful lot of wine now and talking too much. I hope you won't be angry if I mention now that I was beginning to produce the same effect on Avdotya Romanovna. 
But I was stupid and impatient and spoiled it all. Evdotya Romanovna had several times, and one time in particular, been greatly displeased by the expression of my eyes, would you believe it? There was sometimes a light in them which frightened her, and grew stronger and stronger and more unguarded till it was hateful to her. No need to go into detail, but we parted. There I acted stupidly again. I fell to jeering in the coarsest way at all such propaganda and efforts to convert me. Parasha came on to the scene again, and not she alone. In fact, there was a tremendous to-do. Ah, oh, Rodion Romanovich, if you could only see how your sister's eyes can flash sometimes! Never mind my being drunk at this moment, and having had a whole glass of wine, I am speaking the truth. I assure you that this glance has haunted my dreams. The very rustle of her dress was more than I could stand at last. I really began to think that I might become epileptic. I could never have believed that I could be moved to such a frenzy. It was essential, indeed, to be reconciled, but by then it was impossible. And imagine what I did then! To what a pitch of stupidity a man can be brought by frenzy! Never undertake anything in a frenzy, Rodion Romanovich. I reflected that Avdotya Romanovna was after all a beggar. Ah, excuse me, that's not the word. But does it matter if it expresses the meaning? That she lived by her work, that she had her mother and you to keep. Ah, hang it, you are frowning again. And I resolved to offer her all my money, thirty thousand roubles I could have realized then, if she would run away with me here to Petersburg. Of course I should have vowed eternal love, rapture, and so on. Do you know, I was so wild about her at that time that if she had told me to poison Marfa Petrovna or to cut her throat and to marry herself, it would have been done at once. But it ended in the catastrophe of which you know already. You can fancy how frantic I was when I heard that Marfa Petrovna had got hold of that scoundrelly attorney Luzhin and had almost made a match between them, which would really have been just the same thing as I was proposing, wouldn't it, wouldn't it? I notice that you've begun to be very attentive, you interesting young man." Zvidrigailov struck the table with his fist impatiently. He was flushed. Raskolnikov saw clearly that the glass or glass and a half of champagne that he had sipped almost unconsciously was affecting him, and he resolved to take advantage of the opportunity. He felt very suspicious of Svidrigailov. Well, after what you have said, I am fully convinced that you have come to Petersburg with designs on my sister," he said directly to Svidrigailov, in order to irritate him further. "'Oh, nonsense!' said Svidrigailov, seeming to rouse himself. "'Why, I told you. Besides, your sister can't endure me.' "'Yes, I am certain that she can't, but that's not the point.' "'Are you so sure that she can't?' Svidrigailov screwed up his eyes and smiled mockingly. You are right, she doesn't love me, but you can never be sure of what has passed between husband and wife or lover and mistress. There's always a little corner which remains a secret to the world and is only known to those two. Will you answer for it that Avdotya Romanovna regarded me with aversion? From some words you've dropped I notice that you still have designs, and of course evil ones, on Donia and mean to carry them out promptly. What? Have I dropped words like that? 
Svidrigailov asked in naive dismay, taking not the slightest notice of the epithet bestowed on his designs. "'Why, you are dropping them even now! Why are you so frightened? What are you so afraid of now?' "'Me? Afraid? Afraid of you? You have rather to be afraid of me, cher ami. But what nonsense! I've drunk too much, though, I see that. I was almost saying too much again. Damn the wine! Hi there! Water!" He snatched up the champagne bottle and flung it without ceremony out of the window. Philippe brought the water. "'That's all nonsense,' said Svidrigailov, wetting a towel and putting it to his head. "'But I can answer you in one word and annihilate all your suspicions. Do you know that I'm going to get married?' "'You told me so before. Did I? I've forgotten.' But I couldn't have told you so for certain, for I had not even seen my betrothed. I only meant to. But now I really have a betrothed, and it's a settled thing, and if it weren't that I have business that can't be put off, I would have taken you to see them at once, for I should like to ask your advice." Ah, hang it, only ten minutes left. See, look at the watch. But I must tell you, for it's an interesting story, my marriage, in its own way. Where are you off to? Going again? No, I am not going away now. Not at all? We shall see. I'll take you there, I'll show you my betrothed, only not now. For you'll soon have to be off. You have to go to the right and I to the left. Do you know that, Madame Reslich, the woman I am lodging with now, eh? I know what you're thinking, that she's the woman whose girl they say drowned herself in the winter. Come, are you listening? She arranged it all for me. You're bored, she said. You want something to fill up your time. For, you know, I am a gloomy, depressed person. Do you think I'm light-hearted? No, I'm gloomy. I do no harm, but sit in a corner without speaking a word for three days at a time. And that Reslich is a sly hussy, I tell you. I know what she has got in her mind. She thinks I shall get sick of it, abandon my wife and depart, and she'll get hold of her and make a profit out of her in our class, of course, or higher. She told me the father was a broken-down retired official, who has been sitting in a chair for the last three years with his legs paralyzed. The mama, she said, was a sensible woman. There is a son serving in the provinces, but he doesn't help. There is a daughter, who is married, but she doesn't visit them. And they've two little nephews on their hands, as though their own children were not enough and they've taken from school their youngest daughter, a girl, who'll be sixteen in another month, so that then she can be married. She was for me. We went there. How funny it was! I present myself—a landowner, a widower, of a well-known name, with connections, with a fortune. What if I am fifty and she is not sixteen? Who thinks of that? But it's fascinating, isn't it? It is fascinating, ha, <laughs> ha! You should have seen how I talked to the papa and mamma. It was worth paying to have seen me at that moment. She comes in, curtsies, you can fancy, still in a short frock, an unopened bud, flushing like a sunset. She had been told, no doubt. I don't know how you feel about female faces, but to my mind, these sixteen years, these childish eyes, shyness and tears of bashfulness are better than beauty and she is a perfect little picture, too. Fair hair in little curls, like a lamb's, full little rosy lips, tiny feet, a charmer. 
Well, we made friends. I told them I was in a hurry owing to domestic circumstances, and the next day, that is the day before yesterday, we were betrothed. When I go now, I take her on my knee at once and keep her there. Well, she flushes like a sunset, and I kiss her every minute. Her mamma, of course, impresses on her that this is her husband and that this must be so. It's simply delicious. The present betrothed condition is perhaps better than marriage. Here you have what is called la nature et la taverite. <laughs> I've talked to her twice. She is far from a fool. Sometimes she steals a look at me that positively scorches me. Her face is like Raphael's Madonna. You know, the Sistine Madonna's face has something fantastic in it, the face of mournful religious ecstasy. Have you noticed it? Well, she's something in that line. The day after we'd been betrothed, I bought her presents to the value of fifteen hundred roubles, a set of diamonds and another of pearls, and a silver dressing-case as large as this, with all sorts of things in it, so that even my Madonna's face glowed. I sat her on my knee yesterday, and I suppose rather too unceremoniously, she flushed crimson and the tears started, but she didn't want to show it. We were left alone. She suddenly flung herself on my neck, for the first time of her own accord, put her little arms around me, kissed me, and vowed that she would be an obedient, faithful, and good wife, would make me happy, would devote all her life, every minute of her life, would sacrifice everything, everything, and that all she asks in return is my respect, and that she wants nothing, nothing more from me, no presence. You'll admit that to hear such a confession, alone, from an angel of sixteen in a muslin frock, with little curls, with a flush of maiden shyness in her cheeks and tears of enthusiasm in her eyes, is rather fascinating. Isn't it fascinating? It's worth paying for, isn't it? Well, listen. We'll go to see my betrothed, only not just now. The fact is, this monstrous difference in age and development excites your sensuality. Will you really make such a marriage? Why, of course. Everyone thinks of himself, and he lives most gaily who knows best how to deceive himself. <laughs> but why are you so keen about virtue? Have mercy on me, my good friend. I am a sinful man. <laughs> But you have provided for the children of Katerina Ivanovna, though, though you had your own reasons. I understand it all now. I am always fond of children, very fond of them, laughed Svidrigailov. I can tell you one curious instance of it. The first day I came here I visited various haunts. After seven years I simply rushed at them. You probably noticed that I am not in a hurry to renew acquaintance with my old friends. I shall do without them as long as I can. Do you know, when I was with Marfa Petrovna in the country, I was haunted by the thought of these places where anyone who knows his way about can find a great deal. Yes, upon my soul. The peasants have vodka. The educated young people, shut out from activity, waste themselves in impossible dreams and visions and are crippled by theories. Jews have sprung up and are amassing money and all the rest give themselves up to debauchery. From the first hour the town reeked of its familiar odors. I chanced to be in a frightful den. I like my dens dirty. It was a dance, so-called, and there was a can-can such as I never saw in my day. Yes, there you have progress. 
all of a sudden I saw a little girl of thirteen, nicely dressed, dancing with a specialist in that line, with another one vis-à-vis. Her mother was sitting on a chair by the wall. You can't fancy what a can-can that was. The girl was ashamed, blushed, at last felt insulted and began to cry. Her partner seized her and began whirling her round and performing before her. Everyone laughed and, I like your public, even the can-can public. They laughed and shouted, serves her right, serves her right, shouldn't bring children. Well, it's not my business whether that consoling reflection was logical or not. I at once fixed on my plan, sat down by the mother, and began by saying that I too was a stranger and that people here were ill-bred and that they couldn't distinguish decent folks and treat them with respect, gave her to understand that I had plenty of money, offered to take them home in my carriage. I took them home and got to know them. They were lodging in a miserable little hole and had only just arrived from the country. She told me that she and her daughter could only regard my acquaintance as an honor. I found out that they had nothing of their own and had come to town upon some legal business. I proffered my services and money. I learnt that they had gone to the dancing saloon by mistake, believing that it was a genuine dancing class. I offered to assist in the young girl's education in French and dancing. My offer was accepted with enthusiasm as an honor, and we are still friendly. If you like, we'll go and see them, only not just now. Stop! Enough of your vile, nasty anecdotes, depraved, vile, sensual man! Schiller! You are a regular Schiller! Oh, la vertu va te seniche! But you know I shall tell you these things on purpose, for the purpose of hearing your outcries! I dare say, I can see I'm ridiculous myself, muttered Raskolnikov angrily. Svidrigailov laughed heartily. Finally he called Philippe, paid his bill, and began getting up. "'I say, but I am drunk, as a cause,' he said. "'It's been a pleasure.' "'I should rather think it must be a pleasure,' cried Raskolnikov, getting up. "'No doubt it is a pleasure for a worn-out profligate to describe such adventures with a monstrous project of the same sort in his mind, especially under such circumstances and to such a man as me. It's stimulating.' Well, if you come to that, Svidrigailov answered, scrutinizing Raskolnikov with some surprise. If you come to that, you are a thorough cynic yourself. You've plenty to make you so, anyway. You can understand a great deal, and you can do a great deal, too. But enough. I sincerely regret not having had more talk with you, but I shan't lose sight of you. Only wait a bit. Svidrigailov walked out of the restaurant. Raskolnikov walked out after him. Svidrigailov was not, however, very drunk. The wine had affected him for a moment, but it was passing off every minute. He was preoccupied with something of importance and was frowning. He was apparently excited and uneasy in anticipation of something. His manner to Raskolnikov had changed during the last few minutes, and he was ruder and more sneering every moment. Raskolnikov noticed all this, and he too was uneasy. He became very suspicious of Svidrigailov and resolved to follow him. They came out onto the pavement. "'You go to the right, and I to the left. Or, if you like, the other way. Only adieu, mon plaisir. May we meet again.' 
and he walked to the right towards the haymarket. End of Part 6, Chapter 4《Part Six, Chapter Five of Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky, translated by Constance Garnett, 1861 to 1946. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Six, Chapter Five. Raskolnikov walked after him. What's this? cried Svidrigailov, turning round. I thought I said, it means that I am not going to lose sight of you now. What? Both stood still and gazed at one another as though measuring their strength. From all your half-tipsy stories, Raskolnikov observed harshly, I am positive that you have not given up your designs on my sister, but are pursuing them more actively than ever. I have learnt that my sister received a letter this morning. You have hardly been able to sit still all this time. You may have unearthed a wife on the way, but that means nothing. I should like to make certain myself." Raskolnikov could hardly have said himself what he wanted and of what he wished to make certain. "'Upon my word! I'll call the police!' "'Call away!' Again they stood for a minute facing each other. At last Svidrigailov's face changed. Having satisfied himself that Raskolnikov was not frightened at his threat, he assumed a mirthful and friendly air. "'What a fellow!' I purposely refrain from referring to your affair, though I am devoured by curiosity. It's a fantastic affair. I put it off till another time, but you're enough to rouse the dead. Well, let us go. Only, I warn you beforehand, I am only going home for a moment, to get some money. Then I shall lock up the flat, take a cab, and go to spend the evening at the islands. Now, now, are you going to follow me? I'm coming to your lodgings not to see you but Sofia Semyonovna, to say I'm sorry not to have been at the funeral. That's as you like, but Sofia Semyonovna is not at home. She has taken the three children to an old lady of high rank, the patroness of some orphan asylums, whom I used to know years ago. I charm the old lady by depositing a sum of money with her to provide for the three children of Katerina Ivanovna, and subscribing to the institution as well. I told her, too, the story of Sofia Semyonovna in full detail, suppressing nothing. It produced an indescribable effect on her. That's why Sofia Semyonovna has been invited to call today at the X Hotel, where the lady is staying for the time. No matter, I'll come all the same. As you like, it's nothing to me, but I won't come with you. Here we are at home. By the way, I am convinced that you regard me with suspicion just because I have shown such delicacy and have not so far troubled you with questions. You understand? It struck you as extraordinary. I don't mind betting it's that. Well, it teaches one to show delicacy. And to listen at doors. Ah, that's it, is it? laughed Svidrigailov. Yes, I should have been surprised if you had let that pass after all that has happened. Ha-ha! <laughs> though I did understand something of the pranks you had been up to and were telling Sofia Semyonovna about, what was the meaning of it? Perhaps I am quite behind the times and can't understand. For goodness' sake, explain it, my dear boy. Expound the latest theories." "'You couldn't have heard anything. You're making it all up.' "'But I'm not talking about that. 
though I did hear something. No, I'm talking of the way you keep sighing and groaning now. The shiller in you is in revolt every moment, and now you tell me not to listen at doors. If that's how you feel, go and inform the police that you had this mischance. You made a little mistake in your theory. But if you are convinced that one mustn't listen at doors, but one may murder old women at one's pleasure, you'd better be off to America and make haste. Run, young man, there may still be time. I'm speaking sincerely. Haven't you the money? I'll give you the fare." I'm not thinking of that at all. Raskolnikov interrupted with disgust. I understand, but don't put yourself out, don't discuss it if you don't want to. I understand the questions you are worrying over, moral ones, aren't they? Duties of citizen and man? Lay them all aside. They are nothing to you now, ha-ha. <laughs> You'll say you are still a man and a citizen. If so, you ought not to have got into this coil. It's no use taking up a job you are not fit for. Well, you'd better shoot yourself, or don't you want to?" You seem trying to enrage me, to make me leave you. What a queer fellow! But here we are. Welcome to the staircase. You see, that's the way to Sofia Semyonovna. Look, there is no one at home. Don't you believe me? Ask Kapernomov. She leaves the key with him. Here is Madame de Kapernomov herself. Hey, what? She is rather deaf. Has she gone out? Where? Did you hear? She is not in and won't be till late in the evening, probably. Well, come to my room. You wanted to come and see me, didn't you? Here we are. Madame Reslich is not at home. She is a woman who is always busy, an excellent woman, I assure you. She might have been of use to you if you had been a little more sensible. Now see. I take this five percent bond out of the bureau, see what a lot I've got of them still. This one will be turned into cash today. I mustn't waste any more time. The bureau is locked, the flat is locked, and here we are again on the stairs. Shall we take a cab? I'm going to the islands. Would you like a lift? I'll take this carriage. Ah, you refuse? You are tired of it. Come for a drive. I believe it will come on to rain. Never mind, we'll put down the hood." Svidrigailov was already in the carriage. Raskolnikov decided that his suspicions were at least for that moment unjust. Without answering a word he turned and walked back towards the haymarket. If he had only turned round on his way he might have seen Svidrigailov get out not a hundred paces off, dismiss the cab and walk along the pavement. But he had turned the corner and could see nothing. Intense disgust drew him away from Svidrigailov. To think that I could for one instant have looked for help from that coarse brute, that depraved sensualist and blackguard, he cried. Raskolnikov's judgment was uttered too lightly and hastily. There was something about Svidrigailov which gave him a certain original, even a mysterious character. As concerned his sister, Raskolnikov was convinced that Svidrigailov would not leave her in peace. But it was too tiresome and unbearable to go on thinking and thinking about this. When he was alone he had not gone twenty paces before he sank, as usual, into deep thought. On the bridge he stood by the railing and began gazing at the water, and his sister was standing close by him. He met her at the entrance to the bridge, but passed by without seeing her. 
Donya had never met him like this in the street before and was struck with dismay. She stood still and did not know whether to call to him or not. Suddenly she saw Svidrigailov coming quickly from the direction of the haymarket. He seemed to be approaching cautiously. He did not go on to the bridge, but stood aside on the pavement, doing all he could to avoid Raskolnikov seeing him. He had observed Donya for some time, and had been making signs to her. She fancied he was signaling to beg her not to speak to her brother, but to come to him. That's what Donya did. She stole by her brother and went up to Svidrigailov. "'Let us make haste away,' Svidrigailov whispered to her. "'I don't want Rodion Romanovich to know of our meeting. I must tell you I've been sitting with him in the restaurant close by, where he looked me up and I had great difficulty in getting rid of him. He has somehow heard of my letter to you and suspects something. It wasn't you who told him, of course, but if not you, who then?' "'Well, we've turned the corner now.' Donya interrupted, and my brother won't see us. I have to tell you that I am going no further with you. Speak to me here. You can tell it all in the street." In the first place, I can't say it in the street. Secondly, you must hear Sofia Semyonovna, too. And thirdly, I will show you some papers. Oh, well, if you won't agree to come with me, I shall refuse to give any explanation and go away at once. But I beg you not to forget that a very curious secret of your beloved brother's is entirely in my keeping." Donya stood still, hesitating, and looked at Svidrigailov with searching eyes. "'What are you afraid of?' he observed quietly. "'The town is not the country, and even in the country you did me more harm than I did you.' "'Have you prepared Sofia Semyonovna?' No. I have not said a word to her, and I'm not quite certain whether she is at home now, but most likely she is. She has buried her stepmother today. She is not likely to go visiting on such a day. For the time I don't want to speak to anyone about it, and I half regret having spoken to you. The slightest indiscretion is as bad as betrayal in a thing like this. I live in that house. We are coming to it. That's the porter of our house. He knows me very well. You see, he's bowing. He sees I'm coming with a lady, and no doubt he has noticed your face already, and you will be glad of that if you are afraid of me and suspicious. Excuse my putting things so coarsely. I haven't a flat to myself. Sofia Semyonovna's room is next to mine. She lodges in the next flat. The whole floor is let out in lodgings. Why are you frightened like a child? Am I really so terrible? Svidrigailov's lips were twisted in a condescending smile, but he was in no smiling mood. His heart was throbbing and he could scarcely breathe. He spoke rather loud to cover his growing excitement. But Donya did not notice this peculiar excitement. She was so irritated by his remark that she was frightened of him like a child and that he was so terrible to her. "'Though I know you are not a man of honor, I am not in the least afraid of you. Lead the way.' she said with apparent composure, but her face was very pale. Svidrigailov stopped at Sonia's room. "'Allow me to inquire whether she is at home. She is not. How unfortunate! But I know she may come quite soon. If she's gone out, it can only be to see a lady about the orphans. Their mother is dead. I've been meddling and making arrangements for them. If Sofia Semyonovna does not come back in ten minutes, I will send her to you, today if you like, 
This is my flat. These are my two rooms. Madame Reslich, my landlady, has the next room. Now look this way. I will show you my chief piece of evidence. This door from my bedroom leads into two perfectly empty rooms, which are to let. Here they are. You must look into them with some attention." Svidrigailov occupied two fairly large furnished rooms. Donya was looking about her mistrustfully, but saw nothing special in the furniture or position of the rooms. Yet there was something to observe, for instance, that Svidrigailov's flat was exactly between two sets of almost uninhabited apartments. His rooms are not entered directly from the passage, but through the landlady's two almost empty rooms. Unlocking a door leading out of his bedroom, Svidrigailov showed Donya the two empty rooms that were to let. Donya stopped in the doorway, not knowing what she was called to look upon, but Svidrigailov hastened to explain. Look here, at this second large room. Notice that door, it's locked. By the door stands a chair, the only one in the two rooms. I brought it from my room so as to listen more conveniently. Just the other side of the door is Sofia Semyonovna's table. She sat there talking to Rodion Romanovich. And I sat here listening on two successive evenings, for two hours each time, and of course I was able to learn something. What do you think?" You listened? Yes, I did. Now come back to my room. We can't sit down here. He brought Avdotya Romanovna back into his sitting-room and offered her a chair. He sat down at the opposite side of the table, at least seven feet from her, but probably there was the same glow in his eyes which had once frightened Donya so much. She shuddered and once more looked about her distrustfully. It was an involuntary gesture. She evidently did not wish to betray her uneasiness. But the secluded position of Svidrigailov's lodging had suddenly struck her. She wanted to ask whether his landlady at least were at home, but pride kept her from asking. Moreover, she had another trouble in her heart incomparably greater than fear for herself. She was in great distress. "'Here is your letter,' she said, laying it on the table. "'Can it be true what you write? You hint at a crime committed, you say, by my brother. You hint at it too clearly. You daren't deny it now. I must tell you that I'd heard of this stupid story before you wrote, and don't believe a word of it. It's a disgusting and ridiculous suspicion. I know the story, and why and how it was invented. You can have no proofs. You promise to prove it. Speak. But let me warn you that I don't believe you. I don't believe you." Donya said this, speaking hurriedly, and for an instant the color rushed to her face. If you didn't believe it, how could you risk coming alone to my rooms? Why have you come? Simply from curiosity? Don't torment me. Speak, speak! There's no denying that you are a brave girl. Upon my word, I thought you would have asked Mr. Razumian to escort you here. But he was not with you, nor anywhere near. I was on the lookout. It's spirited of you, it proves you wanted to spare Rodion Romanovich. But everything is divine in you. About your brother, what am I to say to you? You've just seen him yourself. What did you think of him? Surely that's not the only thing you are building on? No, not that, but on his own words. He came here on two successive evenings to see Sofia Semyonovna. I've shown you where they sat. He made a full confession to her. 
He is a murderer. He killed an old woman, a pawnbroker, with whom he had pawned things himself. He killed her sister, too, a peddler woman called Lizaveta, who happened to come in while he was murdering her sister. He killed them with an axe he brought with him. He murdered them to rob them, and he did rob them. He took money and various things. He told all this, word for word, to Sofia Semyonovna, the only person who knows his secret. But she has had no share by word or deed in the murder. She was as horrified at it as you are now. Don't be anxious. She won't betray him." "'It cannot be,' muttered Donia, with white lips. She gasped for breath. "'It cannot be. There was not the slightest cause, no sort of ground. It's a lie, a lie!' He robbed her, that was the cause. He took money and things. It's true that by his own admission he made no use of the money or things, but hid them under a stone, where they are now. But that was because he dared not make use of them. "'But how could he steal, rob? How could he dream of it?' cried Donia, and she jumped up from the chair. "'Why, you know him, and you've seen him. Can he be a thief?' She seemed to be imploring Svidrigailov. She had entirely forgotten her fear. There are thousands and millions of combinations and possibilities, Avdotya Romanovna. A thief steals and knows he's a scoundrel. But I've heard of a gentleman who broke open the mail. Who knows? Very likely he thought he was doing a gentlemanly thing. Of course, I should not have believed it myself, if I'd been told of it as you have, but I believe my own ears. He explained all the causes of it to Sofia Semyonovna, too, but she did not believe her ears at first. Yet she believed her own eyes at last. What were the causes? It's a long story, Avdotya Romanovna. Here's, how shall I tell you, a theory of sort, the same one by which I, for instance, consider that a single misdeed is permissible if the principal aim is right, a solitary wrongdoing and hundreds of good deeds. It's galling, too, of course, for a young man of gifts and overweening pride to know that if he had, for instance, a paltry three thousand, his whole career, his whole future would be differently shaped, and yet not to have that three thousand. Add to that nervous irritability from hunger, from lodging in a hole, from rags, from a vivid sense of the charm of his social position and his sister's and mother's position too. Above all, vanity, pride and vanity though goodness knows he may have good qualities, too. I am not blaming him, please don't think it. Besides, it's not my business. A special little theory came in, too. A theory of a sort. Dividing mankind, you see, into material and superior persons. That is, persons to whom the law does not apply, owing to their superiority. Who make laws for the rest of mankind, the material, that is. It's all right as a theory comme Napoleon attracted him tremendously, that is, what affected him was that a great many men of genius have not hesitated at wrongdoing, but have overstepped the law without thinking about it. He seems to have fancied that he was a genius too, that is, he was convinced of it for a time. He has suffered a great deal, and is still suffering from the idea that he could make a theory but was incapable of boldly overstepping the law, and so he is not a man of genius. 
and that's humiliating for a young man of any pride, in our day especially." "'But remorse? You deny him any moral feeling, then? Is he like that?' "'Ah, Avdotya Romanovna, everything is in a muddle now. Not that it was ever in very good order. Russians in general are broad in their ideas, Avdotya Romanovna, broad like their land, and exceedingly disposed to the fantastic, the chaotic. But it's a misfortune to be broad without a special genius. Do you remember what a lot of talk we had together on this subject, sitting in the evenings on the terrace after supper? Why, you used to reproach me with breadth. Who knows, perhaps we were talking at the very time when he was lying here thinking over his plan. There are no sacred traditions amongst us, especially in the educated class, Avdotya Romanovna. At the best, someone will make them up somehow for himself, out of books, or from some old chronicle. But those are, for the most part, the learned and all old fogies, so that it would be almost ill-bred in a man of society. You know my opinions in general, though. I never blame anyone. I do nothing at all. I persevere in that. But we've talked of this more than once before. I was so happy indeed as to interest you in my opinions. You are very pale, Avdotya Romanovna." I know his theory. I read that article of his about men to whom all is permitted. Razumian brought it to me. Mr. Razumian, your brother's article? In a magazine? Is there such an article? I didn't know. It must be interesting. But where are you going, Avdotya Romanovna? I want to see Sofia Semyonovna, Donya articulated faintly. How do I get to her? She has come in, perhaps. I must see her at once. Perhaps she—" Avdotya Romanovna could not finish. Her breath literally failed her. Sofia Semyonovna will not be back till night, at least I believe not. She was to have been back at once, but if not, then she will not be in till quite late. Ah, then you are lying. I see. You were lying, lying all the time. I don't believe you, I don't believe you!" cried Donya, completely losing her head. Almost fainting, she sank onto a chair which Svidrigailov made haste to give her. Avdotya Romanovna, what is it? Control yourself. Here is some water. Drink a little." He sprinkled some water over her. Donya shuddered and came to herself. "'It has acted violently,' Svidrigailov muttered to himself, frowning. Evdotya Romanovna, calm yourself. Believe me, he has friends. We will save him. Would you like me to take him abroad? I have money. I can get a ticket in three days. And as for the murder, he will do all sorts of good deeds yet to atone for it. Calm yourself. He may become a great man yet. Well, how are you? How do you feel? Cruel man! To be able to jeer at it! Let me go! Where are you going? To him. Where is he? Do you know? Why is this door locked? We came in at that door and now it is locked. When did you manage to lock it? We couldn't be shouting all over the flat on such a subject. I am far from jeering. It's simply that I am sick of talking like this. But how can you go in such a state? Do you want to betray him? You will drive him to fury and he will give himself up. Let me tell you, he is already being watched. They are already on his track. 
you will simply be giving him away. Wait a little. I saw him and was talking to him just now. He can still be saved. Wait a bit. Sit down. Let us think it over together." I asked you to come in in order to discuss it alone with you and to consider it thoroughly. But do sit down. How can you save him? Can he really be saved? Donya sat down. Svidrigailov sat down beside her. It all depends on you. On you, on you alone. He began with glowing eyes, almost in a whisper, and hardly able to utter the words for emotion. Donya drew back from him in alarm. He too was trembling all over. You, one word from you, and he is saved. I, I'll save him. I have money and friends. I'll send him away at once. I'll get a passport, two passports, one for him and one for me. I have friends, capable people. If you like, I'll take a passport for you, for your mother. What do you want with Razumian? I love you too. I love you beyond everything. Let me kiss the hem of your dress. Let me, let me. The very rustle of it is too much for me. Tell me, do that, and I'll do it. I'll do everything. I will do the impossible. What you believe, I will believe. I'll do anything, anything. Don't, don't look at me like that. Do you know that you are killing me? He was almost beginning to rave. Something seemed suddenly to go in his head. Donya jumped up and rushed to the door. Open it! Open it! she called, shaking at the door. Open it! Is there no one there? Zvidrigailov got up and came to himself. His still trembling lips slowly broke into an angry, mocking smile. There is no one at home, he said quietly and emphatically. The landlady has gone out, and it's a waste of time to shout like that. You are only exciting yourself uselessly. Where is the key? Open the door at once, at once, base man! I have lost the key and cannot find it. This is an outrage, cried Donya, turning pale as death. She rushed to the furthest corner, where she made haste to barricade herself with a little table. She did not scream, but she fixed her eyes on her tormentor and watched every movement he made. Svidrigailov remained standing at the other end of the room facing her. He was positively composed, at least in appearance, but his face was pale as before. The mocking smile did not leave his face. You spoke of outrage just now, Avdotya Romanovna. In that case you may be sure I've taken measures. Sofia Semyonovna is not at home. The Kapernomovs are far away. There are five locked rooms between. I am at least twice as strong as you are, and I have nothing to fear besides. For you could not complain afterwards. You surely would not be willing actually to betray your brother. Besides, no one would believe you. How should a girl have come alone to visit a solitary man in his lodgings? So that even if you do sacrifice your brother, you could prove nothing. It is very difficult to prove an assault, Avdotya Romanovna." Scoundrel! whispered Donya indignantly. As you like. But observe I was only speaking by way of a general proposition. It's my personal conviction that you are perfectly right. Violence is hateful. I only spoke to show you that you need have no remorse even if you were willing to save your brother of your own accord as I suggest to you. 
you would simply be submitting to circumstances, to violence in fact, if we must use that word. Think about it. Your brother's and your mother's fate are in your hands. I will be your slave, all my life. I will wait here." Svidrigailov sat down on the sofa about eight steps from Donia. She had not the slightest doubt now of his unbending determination. Besides, she knew him. Suddenly she pulled out of her pocket a revolver, cocked it, and laid it in her hand on the table. Svidrigailov jumped up. "'Aha! So that's it, is it?' he cried, surprised but smiling maliciously. "'Well, that completely alters the aspect of affairs. You've made things wonderfully easier for me, Avdotya Romanovna. But where did you get the revolver? Was it Mr. Razumian? Why, it's my revolver, an old friend! And how I've hunted for it! The shooting lessons I've given you in the country have not been thrown away. It's not your revolver. It belonged to Marfa Petrovna, whom you killed, wretch. There was nothing of yours in her house. I took it when I began to suspect what you were capable of. If you dare to advance one step, I swear I'll kill you." She was frantic. "'But your brother? I ask from curiosity,' said Svidrigailov, still standing where he was. "'Inform if you want to. Don't stir. Don't come nearer. I'll shoot. You poisoned your wife, I know. You are a murderer yourself.' She held the revolver ready. "'Are you so positive I poisoned Marfa Petrovna?' You did! You hinted it yourself! You talked to me of poison! I know you went to get it! You had it in readiness! It was your doing! It must have been your doing! Scoundrel!" Even if that were true, it would have been for your sake. You would have been the cause. You are lying! I hated you always, always! Oh, ho, Avdotya Romanovna! You seem to have forgotten how you softened to me in the heat of propaganda. I saw it in your eyes. Do you remember that moonlight night, when the nightingale was singing?" That's a lie. There was a flash of fury in Donia's eyes. That's a lie and a libel. A lie? Well, if you like, it's a lie. I made it up. Women ought not to be reminded of such things. He smiled. I know you will shoot, you pretty wild creature. Well, shoot away." Donia raised the revolver, and deadly pale, gazed at him, measuring the distance and awaiting the first movement on his part. Her lower lip was white and quivering and her big black eyes flashed like fire. He had never seen her so handsome. The fire glowing in her eyes at the moment she raised the revolver seemed to kindle him and there was a pang of anguish in his heart. He took a step forward and a shot rang out. The bullet grazed his hair and flew into the wall behind. He stood still and laughed softly. The wasp has stung me. She aimed straight at my head. What's this? Blood? He pulled out his handkerchief to wipe the blood, which flowed in a thin stream down his right temple. The bullet seemed to have just grazed the skin. Donya lowered the revolver and looked at Svidrigailov not so much in terror as in a sort of wild amazement. She seemed not to understand what she was doing and what was going on. "'Well, you missed. Fire again. I'll wait,' said Svidrigailov softly, still smiling, but gloomily. "'If you go on like that, 
I shall have time to seize you before you cock again." Donia started, quickly cocked the pistol, and again raised it. "'Let me be!' she cried in despair. "'I swear I'll shoot again! I—I'll kill you!' "'Well, at three paces you can hardly help it. But if you don't, then—' His eyes flashed, and he took two steps forward. Donia shot again. It missed fire. You haven't loaded it properly. Never mind, you have another charge there. Get it ready. I'll wait." He stood facing her, two paces away, waiting and gazing at her with wild determination, with feverishly passionate, stubborn, set eyes. Donia saw that he would sooner die than let her go. And now, of course, she would kill him, at two paces. Suddenly she flung away the revolver. She's dropped it," said Svidrigailov with surprise, and he drew a deep breath. A weight seemed to have rolled from his heart, perhaps not only the fear of death. Indeed, he may scarcely have felt it at that moment. It was the deliverance from another feeling, darker and more bitter, which he could not himself have defined. He went to Donia and gently put his arm around her waist. She did not resist, but, trembling like a leaf, looked at him with suppliant eyes. He tried to say something, but his lips moved without being able to utter a sound. "'Let me go,' Donia implored. Svidrigailov shuddered. Her voice was now quite different. "'Then you don't love me?' he asked softly. Donia shook her head. "'And—and you can't—never?' he whispered in despair. "'Never!' There followed a moment of terrible, dumb struggle in the heart of Svidrigailov. He looked at her with an indescribable gaze. Suddenly he withdrew his arm, turned quickly to the window, and stood facing it. Another moment passed. Here's the key. He took it out of the left pocket of his coat and laid it on the table behind him, without turning or looking at Donia. Take it. Make haste. He looked stubbornly out of the window. Donia went up to the table to take the key. "'Make haste, make haste!' repeated Svidrigailov, still without turning or moving. But there seemed a terrible significance in the tone of that make haste. Donia understood it, snatched up the key, flew to the door, unlocked it quickly and rushed out of the room. A minute later, beside herself, she ran out onto the canal bank in the direction of X Bridge. Svidrigailov remained three minutes standing at the window. At last he slowly turned, looked about him, and passed his hand over his forehead. A strange smile contorted his face, a pitiful, sad, weak smile, a smile of despair. The blood, which was already getting dry, smeared his hand. He looked angrily at it, then wetted a towel and washed his temple. The revolver which Donia had flung away lay near the door and suddenly caught his eye. He picked it up and examined it. It was a little pocket three-barrel revolver of old-fashioned construction. There were still two charges and one capsule left in it. It could be fired again. He thought a little, put the revolver in his pocket, took his hat, and went out. End of Part 6 Chapter 5